Well, the gospel is exploding at Rome. The emperor, who was declared to be lord and master and ruler and sovereign leader, doesn't quite have a full grasp on what's happening all around him. There's a little fledgling church mixed with Jews who have come out of a Jewish background, they've become Christians, and in that church there are Gentiles, those who were what would be called pagans. They believed in lots of different gods. They worship lots of different idols. And what Caesar doesn't fully understand is that there's a little fledgling church growing at Rome, but they're struggling. They're struggling to get along with one another. And that's where Paul writes this last section of his letter to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, he's, he's telling this little fledgling church how you should live as a Christian. He's already told them who they are in Jesus Christ, that they've been called and that they've been justified and that they've been reconciled and that they've been adopted and that they've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That though they were once weak, now in Christ they've been made strong, that they've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and now they are to go into all the nations and preach the gospels. This is all of God's amazing grace. He's, he's told them all this, but, but now how? Hi, Paul. Well, I want you to try and enter into their struggles. Imagine you were feeling particularly benevolent today and thought, I'm going to invite somebody for, for lunch invite them back and this person's delighted that you've invited them and you come back to your home today and you're scurrying around to get the food ready and suddenly you present the food on the table only for the person to say ah, I can't eat that actually as a Christian I have a conscience issue about eating that particular type of food and that's sort of a modern-day parable as to what was happening in this church at Rome you had Gentiles who came out of a lifestyle where they would eat anything and then you over here had, had Jews who came out of a Jewish lifestyle. They had followed the Mosaic law, which had ritual regulations that you couldn't taste or touch many different types of food based on Leviticus 17. And so they were trying to have fellowship meals together, and the Jews were looking at the Gentiles with scorn, and the Gentiles were looking at the Jews with scorn, and nearly there was such a church split that they were going to have to form two independent churches. And Paul says, men never be in the church. Not when Jesus Christ, who has called you and saved you, whether you come from a Gentile background or a Jewish background, when you come to church, there shouldn't be uniformity, but there should be unity. And so it applies across every age, every generation, every century. And so we introduced this theme of Christian liberty last week, what we should think about the Sabbath day, about head coverings, translations, communion, baptism, alcohol, media consumption, dancing, tattoos, charismatic gifts, hymns, contemporary songs, whatever you view as a secondary issue. Paul says the greatest gift is love, which births unity. Because last week, some of you asked me, or a couple of weeks ago, I understand this theme of Christian liberty, but is there a time when I should forgo my Christian liberty for the sake of others? Well, I'm glad some of you asked it last week, but Paul's going to answer it this week. So let's look at this theme this morning to take the step a little bit further of what it means to be a servant and not a stumbling block. Paul introduced us the whole theme 
generically of Christian liberty, but then now as we all live together as hundreds of members and friends together in this church at Hamilton Road, what does it look like to live out this Christian liberty as being a servant but not a stumbling block? Well, the first thing you need to decide to do is this. You must firstly decide to put other people first. It's a decision. Look at what it says in the Bible in front of you. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather make a decision. It's an imperative in the text never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul's saying, stop judging one another about what they're eating and drinking. Paul is saying, stop fighting with one another and pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, stop spending your physical, your emotional, and your spiritual energy fighting with one another about secondary issue when the whole of Rome is lost and without hope. How many of you here of a mature age and stage can look back down the corridors of time and think about how many endless hours you have spent in different churches fighting about secondary issue when a whole town or city in which you live in doesn't know Jesus? Oh, how the devil loves people fighting in the church. Paul says, you need to make this decision. Don't be a stumbling, don't be a stumbling block. But he helps us think about what we should be thinking about, and he also tells us what he is thinking about, about food and drink. Look, he lets us into the very essence of who Paul is. Look at verse 14. He says, I know, and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing, nothing in itself is unclean, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Paul is saying for certain people, based on their cultural background and baggage that they bring to church, come to the rational conclusion that certain things, certain pieces of food or certain types of drink are unclean in and of themselves. But Paul says, I know that's not true. But for them, it's untrue. And so he's encouraging us in the church to put ourselves in the sandals of other Christians. What do they think? What do they feel? What background are they from? What, what baggage do they bring with them to church? One writer said, the fact that Christ's coming brought an end to the absolute validity of the Mosaic law and thus explicitly to the ritual provisions of the law was standard early Christian teaching. And Paul wants those who are strong in faith in the church to recognize that people can't always grasp the truth. You think of this new believer in Christ who came from a Jewish background, and they're struggling to, to give up the ceremonial law. They're struggling to give up the civil law of Moses, and they're looking at their Gentile brother or sister over there and going, how can they do those things? And they're struggling in their Christian maturity. Well, this person over here never lived under those circumstances, so they, they have no issue with it. Paul says we, we need to be kind to one another who can't grasp the truth at the same stage as us. It reminded me of the Carriker Reed Rope Bridge. Now I'm going to admit to you that the older I get, the more scared I get of heights. I don't like to admit that, but at least it's out there now. And the Carriker Reed Rope Bridge, when some of my friends come from different countries, they go, you know, we'd love to go up to the North Coast, and I love to kind of go, oh, it's too windy today for the Carriker Reed Rope Bridge. 
don't think it would be good for it. But some of my friends, they nearly sprint across it. And I'm kind of trying to maintain my masculinity, and not in a toxic way, but some sort of, well, I'm okay with this. And they're running across, and I'm sort of halfway back, sort of getting across. That's what it can be a little bit like in the church. Some people can grasp their liberty in Christ and their freedom in Christ, and they can race across a particular issue and a divide in the church. But others, others struggle because they're not there yet, and they sort of, they're inching their way across. And Paul's saying, if you're that person sprinting across the rope bridge, don't cause another person to feel weak and insecure because they're not where you're at. Come back and help them. Come back and be united. Come and be together. Decide, Paul says, to put other people first. He says, be careful, be sensitive, be pastoral to other believers who've got a different opinion than you. Paul teases out now, look at the implications, verse 15. He says, for if, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died. It's like Paul saying to this first century church, imagine you're tucking into your sirloin steak medium well with tobacco onions and peppercorn sauce. Well, it's killing your other brother or sister over there. Can't believe that you would eat that. He says, would you be willing to forgo that, that beautiful steak so that your other brother and sister in Christ wouldn't stumble? Because he says, think of how Christ lived. Christ didn't choose the path of self. He chose the path of sacrifice. We read in Ephesians 5 verse 2 about the sacrifice, the submission of Christ. Ephesians 5 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Think then further of more of Christ's ministry. Take for all of us outside of Christ, we were dead and lost and without hope. We were Christless, hopeless, futureless without Christ. And so Christ comes into this world in the incarnation. He who knew no sin ultimately will become sin for us. But firstly, he comes and adds humanity to his divinity, being born in an obscure place like Bethlehem, living in a very obscure place like Nazareth. He comes and identifies with us who are weak. Think of even the beginning of his ministry and his humiliation and coming to earth. But ultimately, what's the ultimate demonstration of his love for weak people like us? Earlier in this letter, Romans 5 verse 6, for while we were still weak, we couldn't get over the rope bridge. In fact, there was no rope bridge for us to get to the other side. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might possibly dare to die. But God shows his love for us that when we couldn't get over the chasm, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think of what he's done for us as weak people. And he says, you won't even give up your, your dinner. Paul writes to this church, to choose the place of sacrifice over choosing to please self. It looks like what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, a 
a church that is other-centered, brimming over with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Paul's telling us here, we must be resolved in this church family in Hamilton Road to put others first. Paul breaks it down as we've already been looking at by what you eat. Verse 15, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He says what you wear to church on Sunday, where you go to your place of social life, whatever you decide to put up on social media, whatever your secondary choices are as a Christian, are they really so important to you that you would put them in place of the spiritual health of another person? Paul says, review your life when you are with other Christians, when you're living in public, when you're living in the workplace, when you're living in this local community. Are you as a Christian doing things that are hurting, offending, or wounding the conscience of other Christians? He says, consider that Christ gave up everything for you by dying on the cross. He's loved us and gave himself for us. And so he says, show that same Christ-like love to other people. Paul is implying here, he's a, Christ has already supplied the supreme price for weak Christians like us, yet we would refuse to pay such an insignificant price of giving up our dinner, giving up on that secondary issue which is so precious to you. Paul's saying another way, how utterly immature it would be for you and me to flaunt or to flout what our conscience allows us to do on secondary issues just to please yourself and yet wound the fence and conscience of another Christian. So we need to make a decision. So secondly then, after we've made the decision, we need to pursue something. Look at verses 16 to 19. We need to pursue kingdom principles for other people. Look at what he says. So, do not let what you, as a Christian, regard as good, be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of secondary issues. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but what is the kingdom of God made up of? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. John Stott said this, the strong in this church are overestimating the importance of diet, which is trivial and underestimating the importance of the kingdom, which is central. Think about that again. The strong in this church at Rome are overestimating the importance of diet, which is trivial, and underestimating the importance of the kingdom, which is central. The bottom line Paul is saying for us, I think, is if you're falling out of love with one another by what you're eating and you're drinking, what you do or you don't do on Sunday, what you watch, what you wear, where you go, what you like or what you dislike, Paul is saying you've got it all wrong. The kingdom of God is not about your Christian liberty or mine, it's about Christian unity. Christian liberty is not about you, it's about him. It's about his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. The apostle helps us in another place to his letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, 28. He says, but if someone says to you, this food has been offered in a sacrifice, 
then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as, here's Paul's heart, just as I try to please everything, everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. You hear Paul's heart for the kingdom? He says, I can eat this sirloin steak if they invite me over for dinner, and it's a Greek household, or I can go to the Jewish household, and I can eat only vegetables and water. I can be in either place, but I'm also willing to give up either in either place so that people might love Jesus. Why? Because he was so consumed with the love of Christ. He was so consumed about what Christ had done for him. Paul would say there's no sacrifice too big for him. He had the kingdom in mind. It wasn't about Paul's Christian liberty, but it was about the Christian gospel and Christian unity. And we can know this unity if we know the, look at what it says in the text, in verse 17, it's in the Holy Spirit. When we think about the kingdom, heaven is, is coming for us. The glory of heaven is coming for us. And yet the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives is a foretaste. The Holy Spirit's ministry is a down payment of the feast that is going to come for the Christian. And so Paul says, if you're in this Christian church, and if you're in the Holy Spirit, you will know joy and peace and righteousness, and you will so find this Christian unity together. But let me tell you about a certain group of people that got it wrong in the first century. Instead of saying, what is of primary importance? What are areas in the Christian church that are indisputable? Things like the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Things like the, the perfect life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. About the absolute inspiration of God's Word. These areas of primary importance, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law threw up secondary issues to places of primary importance. And so what did Jesus say to them? He said to them in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you. Woe to us who would put secondary issues in front of primary issues. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters. What were they? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Think what Paul's just said. The kingdom of God is a place of peace and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. And in a sense, Jesus is saying nearly the same things. You have neglected the kingdom of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You're blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Isn't that incredible? Secondary issues have become primary issues and they actually missed the very primary issue of the gospel and Jesus Christ. And we could drift there. 
If we don't keep to the things of first importance, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, and that He was seen by many others, and that He is coming again. Unless we keep that as primary importance, we will drift and fight and devour one another. We must be careful in Northern Ireland, I think, where we used to live in a very traditional and often legalistic society, that the pendulum could also swing from absolute legalism and traditionalism and conservatism to absolute libertarianism, where actually you could become so full of liberty that you could become legalistic about people who don't follow you. Why? Because the human heart loves to be worshipped. Whether you're a legalist or you're libertarian, we often get the balance wrong unless we sit with Christ and His kingdom, and His principles. What's our role in this in the church? Well, earlier Paul told us a number of weeks ago, as you live together, Romans 12, 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with one another. As far as it depends on you at Hamilton Road, in your role as a member or a friend, live peaceably with with all. One writer said something very helpful. Let me share it with you. Thinking about the libertarian. Only when liberty is liberty to deny oneself and not just the liberty to enjoy all that God the Creator has provided, is it the liberty of the Spirit of Christ. Let me read that again. Only when liberty is a liberty where you can deny yourself and not just the liberty to enjoy all that God the Creator has provided, it is the liberty of the Spirit of Christ. Do you understand that? When you're liberated in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean then that you have to go and enjoy all those liberties. You can, but you don't have to. Paul was so free and full in Christ and brimming over and overflowing with the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God was, was his absolute focus. So wherever he was and whatever circumstances, he thought, what would Christ do? And think how often Christ denied himself. There are many things that he could have appealed for. Even equality with God wasn't something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. You wouldn't believe this, but I read about a church that got into an argument about a Christmas tree and a Christmas program. It's a true story. Some thought a tree was fine, and they understood it in a Christian sense. Others thought, no, Christmas trees are of a pagan origin, and you should not have Christmas trees. And so, when the time for the big Christmas party came, one group brought in the Christmas tree. You know what's happening next. The other group dragged the tree out. And then the first group dragged the tree back in again. This is a true story. They got into a fight. And finally, fists broke out at the Christmas party over the Christmas tree. Eventually, the whole thing was in the newspapers and they ended up suing one another. And one person reported in the paper, what else could non-Christians conclude but that the gospel consists in whether you have a Christmas tree or not. May it never be here. 
may it never be in whatever this new Northern Ireland is. Let us not fight over secondary issues. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the needs of others above our own. Paul helps us as he takes us further in this paragraph. So then how should we live? Verse 19. So then, here's the purpose clause. Let us run after, not, not one another, but let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding rather than fighting, arguing, and debating with one another about what you should or shouldn't do and who's right and who's wrong. Pursue peace. Live in love, live in harmony, live mutually dependent lives as you seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ because we need to live, look at verse 19, for the mutual upbuilding. The Bible says that when you become a Christian, you're born again into a family. And another metaphor the Bible uses, you become a living stone and you're being built up into a spiritual temple. But you know what the mortar is? Love and peace. That's the mortar. Because you know when I look out at you, you all look very different. I know a lot of your backgrounds, some I don't know much about. And you bring, whether we like it or not, all of our cultural perspectives and all of our thinking about politics and Northern Ireland in the past and Northern Ireland in the present and views about secondary issues. You bring those all with you to this, to this family. And so how can this building grow up? Well, it's not only keeping the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as central in all things and his kingdom to come, but that the mortar of love and peace in the Holy Spirit might join us together. And so, what else should we be thinking of? We'll look at the third thing in verse 20 and 21. Your uncontrollable desire for Christian liberty could possibly destroy the church. And so, Paul says in verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Paul says in another place in 1 Corinthians 88, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours or this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. That's how focused on Christ was. He says, I know the meat's fine. I know that when it was being grown or when the food was being grown in the fields or when the cow was growing out in the field, in themselves, they are not inherently sinful, but because of the baggage and the connotations they bring with them, I'm going to abstain if that helps my brother in Christ. He offers a general prohibition then, verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. 
But then lastly, I think this is helpful. Paul says, listen to your conscience. Because sometimes there are some people who are so weak in faith that what they're asking you to do is strong in faith is wrong. And it's hard to know at what time that kicks in or what time it doesn't kick in. Sometimes it's just irrational what that weak person is asking or binding the strong person to do to give up for them. So Paul says, listen to your conscience. He says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. I think a modern-day interpretation of this, there are some secondary issues in, in our lives as people and as Christians that are not for public consumption. They're part of your private life. And if your conscience does not offend you from doing that particular thing, that's okay. But don't flout it and flaunt it in front of others if it would cause them to stumble. C.H. Spurgeon, at the height of his fame, was walking one day down the street of London, and he saw a sign which read, We sell the cigars that C.H. Spurgeon smokes. Do you know what he did when he read that sign? He gave up smoking. Because in Spurgeon's conscience, smoking for him wasn't inherently sinful, but it was causing other Christian brothers and sisters in London to stumble. Let's put this in the contemporary world, the strong sense of Christian freedom and liberty you have. Don't post it all over Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, or whatever media platform you're on. As I consider this pastorally, and I've listened to people over the years, are the things you post online as a Christian posting or boasting in your liberty? In your friendships, taking a selfie, then commenting, here are all my close friends, when another friend who hasn't been invited scrolls at home and feels out of it. In a marriage, posting about how great a husband or wife is while people who sit at home scroll and would love to be married or going through a better divorce. Or children posting about how great our children is when persons sitting at home would love to be married, love to have children, or struggle to have children. Take alcohol posting about how nice your glass of wine is, only to have someone seeing your post whose dad used to be an alcoholic and cannot imagine how a Christian would ever drink alcohol because in their mind, everyone who drinks alcohol is an alcoholic. So we take these secondary issues and we wonder, is there Christian wisdom? These are just a few illustrations, but I hope they serve you in thinking about how you might serve other brothers in Christ and not be a stumbling block to them. And Paul came to this incredible conclusion in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. He says, all things are lawful. But what you do in a sense, this is my footnote, but what you do in the public realm where people can see you, not all things are helpful. All things, he says, are lawful, but not all things build up someone else who's looking on. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And so Paul concludes, verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you have doubt, I think Paul says don't. 
Now, it might be based on the context if it's in the public realm. If you have doubt, I think Paul says, in your conscience, in that moment, Paul says, in the Spirit's power, don't. Let us leave our thoughts as we move now to the Lord's table, thinking about what Christ has done as a servant. Let's consider his place. Jesus lived with his Father in paradise and left heaven as a servant for you and me. Let's consider the praise that our Lord Jesus gave up. He left the angels and the worship of the Father and the Son to come to earth. He gave up his peace. There was no sin in heaven, and then he came into a world full of sin. He gave up his possessions, foxes of holes, and the birds of the air as nests, but the Son of Man came to a place where he had nowhere to lay his head. And out of service, he gave up his position. And Paul says, your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross.